0: Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. To my mind, David Marshak is the owl of holistic education. Indefatigable, alert, attentive educator, mentor to many fine educators, encyclopedic historian, David's handprint is all over the holistic education landscape. His book, The Common Vision, helped legitimatize spirituality as integral to holistic education. His extensive experience starting in a New England prison in the 70s, to helping found and then accepting the first presidency of Self-Design Graduate Institute. With a long professorship at Seattle University in between, reveal a person able to listen, participate, and impart wisdom to those he touches. Like I said, an owl. David is the founding president of Self-Design Graduate Institute, a low residency and online graduate school engaging learners in North and South America, Europe, Asia, and New Zealand in a learning community of care. David is the author of Evolutionary Parenting and the Common Vision Parenting and Education for Wholeness. These books describe the evolutionary insights of Sri Aurobindo, Rudolf Steiner, and Hazrat Inyat Khan in regard to the unfoldment of children and teens from birth to age 21. According to these three teachers, the future of our species depends on our capacity to parent and educate our young in ways that promote the evolution of consciousness and nurture the unfoldment of each individual's potential. Hello David and welcome. Nice to have you here, and it's great to renew our friendship, which wow. goes back to, what, 1992, was it?
1: Um, I don't know exactly when, um, you know, back there in the mists of time, but I don't know exactly.
0: <laughs> it was in Guadalajara that we first met. Well,
1: no, yeah, but we had some contact before then, but I think we didn't actually meet until Guadalajara. So that was, that was 2001.
0: Now really I oh I thought it was much later because it was earlier after, it yeah. was after
1: 9 eleven ah. and it was like a couple months it was right after 9 eleven and the security level uh was was you know at a really different uh peak than it had been before 9 eleven so that's why I remember the timing nice. but I certainly was very familiar with your work before then I think we did have some email interaction mm-hmm. before that as well
0: so I'm interested. Uh, In what attracted you, how did you move to holistic education? I know you were a professor at uh, Seattle University. Mm -hmm. Were you doing holistic education there?
1: Um, Not really. Um, Let me speak to the first part of the question first, and then I'll get to the Seattle U part. So um, I've had a really interesting career in the sense that the first time that I was formerly an educator Uh, I was in charge of an educational program at the New Hampshire State Prison. And this was back in 1972. And, you know, I was 22. Most of my students were between the ages of 19 and 22. And um, they were pretty much all kind of incompetent drug dealers. Because to get sent to maximum security prison, you had to have, have three or four busts to have three or four buffs, you had to be incompetent. So they were, you know, and they were were all pretty predictable. They were young men who, um, they had abusive parents, abusive fathers, they had substance abuse issues in the family, they had their own substance abuse issues. I mean, it was every cliche that you'd heard was being played out, and of course, most of them had learning disabilities of some kind or another that had not been identified, you know, in the public school system and um, had not been addressed. So for the most part, they, had, they were reading at the fourth and fifth grade level. And um, it was just obvious to me that if I wanted to do anything useful with them, I had to do something other than school, because they hated school. Uh-huh. And it was clear that they hated school for good reason, because school had been a place that had been very hostile to them. So, you know, I just really began to um, use my own intuition about um, what was it that would be engaging for these young men that would get them interested in learning.
0: So you're saying it was trial and error and just trying to connect to these young people Mm -hmm. and figure out. What could stimulate them?
1: Well, the the very sh- um, short version of it was I had this brilliant insight. You know, I never read Paulo Freire, but I knew later on when I did read him mm-hmm. that I came across the same insight that he did. Was um, I had this idea where uh, I thought, well, what do people in prison want to know? They want to know about what's going on in the outside world. So I went down to the distributor of the New York Times um, in Concord, New Hampshire. And I had $25 a week. That was my budget. So I talked him into giving me 30 daily copies of the New York Times for my $25 a week. And most of my students couldn't read the New York Times because it was at a 12th grade level then. They were reading fourth, fifth grade. But we had a couple of guys. In addition to the failed drug dealers, we had a couple of white-collar criminals. Uh, We had one Stalinist failed bomber. Uh, (laughs) No, really, we did. And, and then we had one really, really brilliant African-American man who um, had been sent there to get him out of the federal prison system because he was a leader of other men. And um, so we had five or six people who could read it, and we had 22 who couldn't. And over a period of time, we spent about half the day, we had four hours a day, sitting around reading the paper. And by by December, everybody could read it. Actually, by November, everybody could read it because the Frarian principle is you have motivation and you have content that people want to read and you have support. People learn to read.
0: Wow. And, that, so, th- and so that opened you... To the understanding of connecting to people, a relationship, all those holistic education principles? Well, it,
1: it gave me um, confidence in my own intuitive responses to other human beings who were in need and whom I had opportunity to support and help. You know, So it wasn't that it illuminated it for me. You know, it was there in some way or another. And I just began doing what I thought was right and... Not everything worked, but the fundamental um, responses really worked. And there was real, uh, you know, we got to a point with those men where at the beginning, um, you know, one of the things in prison is that people don't listen to each other. So we got to a point, you know, where we could sit around in a circle with a talking stick and have hour long conversations about our lives, about their lives And they would listen to each other because, you know, they evolved their capacities as human beings to be human. And it was tremendously inspiring to me both that this was happening and that I could trust my own, um, you know, intuitive approaches to working with other human beings.
0: That is an abidingly interesting story, and I didn't know it about you, and I really do really appreciate hearing it. But we want. How does it move into holistic education? I mean, when did you go to India? When did you do all that work around Steiner and uh, you know?
1: Well, that's a that's a later on. You know, I went um, the first year I taught in the prison. Uh, The next year I helped to start. An alternative high school in New Hampshire. Uh, our kids in the alternative high school were on their way to prison, so it was like yeah, like that, that in those healers. days
0: that's what an alternative high school was, right. absolutely. And
1: um, so, and then I went and taught in public schools for three years, and because I wanted to kind of to see what it was. What did you teach in public school? I taught English, and then I created a psychology a psychology program in a public mm-hmm. high school. Mm -hmm. Um, in Connecticut, I only lasted three years. I couldn't,
0: (laughs) you couldn't deal. Well, I
1: liked the kids, but I couldn't deal with the fact that, um, you couldn't change the structure. And of course the structure in public schooling is a big part of the problem. You know, if the structure is designed to limit, um, the nature of consciousness, to limit the relationships, to limit the learning uh, and to keep everybody controlled,
0: and also the implicit power structure in the infrastructure. So, okay, we're all a class, but if someone's out of bounds, you're going up the ladder to the principal or the superintendent. And mm-hmm. that whole implied threat, that runs through the infrastructure. Right,
1: well, the, uh, you know, right, the whole nature of power. And um, But even though actually in the 70s, things were looser, you know, because um, the 60s, you know, on one hand there was a you know the rebellion against uh racist classes schooling which had some impact and then the 70s there was this you know reactionary pushback but things in this particular school and in a lot of uh, schools were looser than they are now because we've had this incredible uh you know whole standards and testing authoritarian intensification of the modernist regime mm-hmm. which is still in place now um, anyway, to get to my story, um, you know, I, 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 at the end of three years, I, I ran off to graduate school because I, I needed to get out of the system. Um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do next. And, um, you know, again, to say, how did I get into holistic education? I mean, I was very much, um, even as an undergraduate, uh, you know, a student of, uh, initially, of Marxist critiques and then of Jungian. Um, and then, of, I, I was very much influenced by William Irwin Thompson. Um, where did you go to graduate school? I went to Harvard and I went there, um, you know, kind of, uh, it, it's a little bit ironic because, you know, I went to Yale as an undergraduate and that was kind of unthinking and Harvard was my fifth choice. That's a whole long story, <laughs> but it, it ended up being exactly the right place because I got to work with a man named Donald Oliver and Donald Oliver, um, is you know one of the more significant teachers in my life because he was someone who uh, you know he was he was an interesting mix uh, on one hand um, there he was at Harvard kind of in the belly of the beast but he was a radical cosmologist. I,
0: I think I met him when Ron Miller um, uh, sponsored something mm-hmm. at Goddard. Mm-hmm. And I think I met him probably because yeah. Ron
1: published Don's last book. Uh uh-huh, Yeah. Um, and Don was a pretty irascible character, uh, <laughs> and he, he also was was um, a sexist. One of, one of my contributions. Donald is dead now, so I can say this, and I wouldn't say it if he were alive. So we might offend him. But one of the things that Donald did is that on one hand he was a brilliant teacher. You know, he, he you'd be in in a conversation with him. And you would be grasping for something, and he would help you get it. I mean, he was so good. But at the same time, he often treated women badly. Well, he
0: treated me badly at first, Mm -hmm. because he presented first. Mm -hmm. It was everyone just present. And I asked a simple question, and he treated me like I was a Harvard undergrad who had to defend (laughs) And you know me, David. I'm like, whoa! I'll back off here because I'm okay with myself, and I don't need to go there. But then, when he came to my talk, uh-huh. he was incredibly gracious, and he loved natural learning rhythms.
1: Right. So you experienced the bi- the bimodal part of his character. But if you'd been a woman, it would have been worse. And and <laughs> and so maybe by that time, he one of the things that I contributed, to Donald, because he was, in, you know, he intimidate he was intimidating. I mean, he was, you know. Is that uh, you know? I confronted him about the way he treated women, and pushed him back, and, and there was some movement, at least when I the time that I was around. Um, but Donald was really you know he had this capacity which of rounding up groups of graduate students, uh, and you know we had our own program, and um, so it really was a community. It wasn't just him. Uh, I mean, he was certainly how help, very helpful to me. But there was a community of colleagues, and you know we engaged in um, inquiry together for a couple of a couple of years, and then you know Harvard's really expensive, so you can't afford you can't finish your dissertation. <laughs> you have to go work, you know. Why? Yes. So, but you know it ended up being the right place for me to go. You
0: are uh, of the fifth or sixth person in this podcast who did something important uh then taught in a public system, then felt constrained, and then went to graduate school, and then came back with a holistic perspective. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. I, I keep seeing it mm-hmm. over and over now.
1: Well, I think part of that, I mean, there's another part of my story, which I'll get to in a minute, but um, part of the university, for all of its limitations and all of its corruption is that the university is, you know, one of the few domains in the culture where there is freedom for real inquiry. And real inquiry is supported. And, um, you know, there are, um, I mean, I don't know where the uh, nature of the holistic education special interest group of the American Educational Research Association is now. But when I was a, the program chair for that group, uh, back in 2004, 2005, 2006, you know, there were about 150 members. So that meant that there were at least 150 scholars out there in different universities who identified in one way or another with holistic education. And, of course, the problem was that 95% of them, they were the only one in their mm-hmm. department. Right. The only one in their school. Yes. And, um, you know, they part of what the special interest group did was to create some sense of community. Um, and of course the, uh, you know, uh, Jack Miller's conferences and work, you know, did that as well for some of the same people and some different people.
0: Yeah. So it sounds, what what, what I hear is that these, these different aspects of holistic understanding just kind of um, just, you just came across them, you saw them, you had the inner not knowing already of them, the connections made, and then you went ahead and began to actualize them.
1: Yeah, well, as you know, I mean, I'm, I'm someone who finds a lot of uh, value in descriptions of stages of consciousness development. And so, um, you know, one of the qualities of the 1960s and growing up in the 1960s is that there was a, there were a lot of people who were accessing postmodern consciousness. And so there was support for that. Um, I mean, I, I can remember, you know, the, the going back and being, I was in, um, uh, my first memory of postmodern consciousness was, uh, I was in a bookstore in Greenwich village and I was 15, I was either 14 or 15. I'm, not, I'm probably 15.
0: What year were you born? Because I was there, too, when I was 14 <laughs> and 15. Uh,
1: I was born right at the end of 1949. So.
0: I was born in 47. Okay. so um, <laughs> I was walking down 8th Street once. <laughs> and, you know, remember those hawkers used to be outside the little coffee shop? Mm-hmm. You know, come in, a dollar a charge, and you get a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there in this coffee shop. And this guy comes on stage, and to make a long story short, it's Bob Dylan. Right, Uh uh-huh. Oh, my God. I know, like, (laughs) I didn't, you know, I just thought it was great. Uh Uh-huh. The opening person was Cher. Uh Uh-huh. It's just like, that's what it was then. That's what it was like.
1: right. I I was there uh, like a year or two after that. And so, um, the, 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 uh, when I, when I, um, you know, got into the, the, the other, I think it was the other end, the bitter end or the other end, but I actually didn't even pay. I snuck in the back door and Bob Dylan was long gone, but I, but I did get to see uh, Eric Anderson, Tom Paxton. So,
0: so that
1: that was pretty good. But in the bookstore, I was just, you know, I was wandering around and I I came across um, Paul Goodman's book, Growing Up Absurd. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, just the title hit me like, uh, like, and then I started, and started reading it. And, you know, it, it made sense to me. So that book doesn't make sense to you unless you're in postmodern, because he's coming, you know, it's a postmodern critique.
0: You, you better uh, uh, inform our listeners exactly what you mean by postmodern consciousness. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective. Often featuring a wise person, a wise fool, or a trickster animal, they can be humorous and often have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years, and I love them, and I have to tell you, each time I tell one, I learn much more myself. This story is called, I'm an adult now. The wise fool and his son were taking their salt to market. They had loaded the donkey, putting in the saddlebags on the left and the right equal amounts of salt so that the load would be balanced and they would have success in bringing it to market. However, on the way, there was a rickety bridge that they had to cross. The wise fool went first and his 14-year-old son brought up the rear halfway over the bridge, the wise fool turned around and saw that the load was unbalanced, that the left load was drooping and needed to be rebalanced. So he turned and called out to his 14-year-old son, rebalance the load, pull it up on the left. Now think about it because this really, he meant pull it up on the right. But his son, being 14 years old, had always been known to his father as contrary. So his father thought, oh, I'll tell him to pull it up on the left when I really mean the right, and then he'll pull it up on the right. However, his son went to the donkey and pulled up the load on the left, causing everything to become unbalanced and all the salt to fly off the bridge and into the torrent below. Fool! You've always been contrary. I told you to move up the left-hand load thinking you would move up the right-hand load. Why this time of all times did you listen to me? And his 14-year-old son pulled himself up to his full height, turned to his father and said, I'm 14 years old now and a responsible adult, and so I can follow directions. Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash educators. and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there.
1: I would imagine that everybody listening is familiar with developmental models for individual human beings, uh, going back to Piaget for example, the notion that there are stages that we go through as we grow up and that these stages are radically different particularly in terms of cognition, but also in terms of emotion, um, in terms of the physical body and, um, and in terms of access to soul and spirit as well. So there is a developmental model called Spiral Dynamics Uh, that has grown up um, over the last 45 years, initially created by the work of a man named Claire Graves. And then it's been um, added on to in certain ways and developed by other people that says that in fact, there are stages of consciousness that the Homo sapiens, that the human species has gone through over the 55,000 years that we have been uh, equipped with our with our full frontal lobes, so
0: I thought it was a hundred thousand.
1: Well, that's Homo, okay.
0: We don't have yeah. yeah.
1: Now, sapiens goes back two hundred thousand, actually. Right, but, I know. But the claim to the claim to which I think is really ironic, um, the subspecies of Homo sapiens is actually Homo sapiens sapiens, and that's the a uh, little bit a little bit of, of arrogance there in our claim. But with the the idea that the full frontal lobes are available in the brain, so. Um, there are different stages. Uh, and so, for example, in our in our society today, the three most common stages, um, and I'm going to use the word the language, um, the terminology that's used by a guy named Steve Macintosh, rather than Claire Graves or Don Beck or Ken Wilbur, because I think Macintosh's terminology is simpler.
0: Well, it's really yours now. If you're talking about someone else's, you've cl- you're making it yours.
1: Well, it is, but I'm, I'm going to, okay. you know, cite my sources here. So. There
0: he goes. The Harvard Graduate <laughs>
1: School still speaks. So, uh, so just there's... to
0: say, friends out there, I know David, and this is from him <laughs> and his heart and his beingness. And he's very polite. He's always been. But okay,
1: go ahead. So, traditional consciousness, um, and this really goes back. You know, four or five thousand years, it begins to show up. Um You know, with the, for example, the beginning of Judaism uh, is really the, the the beginning of monotheism, um, or you see some of this in early Hinduism as well, and it's uh some
0: people claim Homer.
1: Well, that's a, Homer is a whole other. Okay, so, that's All good, right. let's not go there. Right, that's a whole. Yeah, other okay,
0: Christian, we're leaving so. you out, Homer.
1: Because uh, Homer. <laughs> <laughs> Homer, there's actually two parts to Homer. Okay. That's a different story. So. All right. And so you see this today. And so, so one of the uh, claims of the developmental model is that there are both positive and negative qu- uh, qualities in each of these stages. And um, so we see traditional consciousness today being mostly manifested by fundamentalists. And it's come to a point where, while there's a lot of positive in it... Um, it often manifests in really negative ways. And and the way to understand this is that we see traditional consciousness or fundamentalism, um, that the structure transcends the content. So they're fundamentalist Jews, they're fundamentalist Christians, they're fundamentalist Muslims, they're fundamentalist Hindus. Um, in Myanmar, they're fundamentalist Buddhists. Um, they're fundamentalist atheists. You know, it's this structure of absolute hierarchy and absolute... Uh, certainty about authority. And it tends also to be hostile to women.
0: So so when you say the content uh, is not as important as the structure, you mean that no matter what the authority puts forward, because it comes from an authority, therefore that's what should be done. Right. So that's the ethics of mm-hmm. it.
1: Okay. So um, in the evolutionary model, the next stage is modernism. And modernism, uh, although it showed up a little bit in Athens and, you know, the golden period of Athens, um, as a major cultural force, it, it dates really back to um, the end of the 16th century, the beginning of the 17th century. Um, and so the, we live in a culture created by modernism and the, the great gifts of modernism are, you know, reason, science, technology, democracy. Um, these are all profoundly positive uh, so, so, evolutionary manifestations in, in the history of the species.
0: So what's the relationship then between structure and content?
1: Well, um, with modernism, the, the relationship becomes clearer because there aren't multiple contents. There's a single content.
0: Okay, I'm a little lost, help me out. Okay. What do you mean by a single content? The
1: content of modernism is that reason <clears throat> is the highest good. Ah. And so then it gets manifested in these different ways. If you go back, I mean the, 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 you know, the early prophets of modernism um, on one hand were people like John Locke, you know, who were the kind of theorists of democracy, uh, the idea that human beings have rights um, if you know, one of the great documents of modernism is the uh, the, the the U.S. Declaration of Independence, um, and um, yeah, and um, the so then you also see um, in the in the articulation of science. Uh, these are the, the two main domains, and then science eventually evolves into technology.
0: So So then singular content means everything has to is subsumed into reason. Reason mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. is the content field in which everything is is organized around.
1: Right. but reason also the reason also gives us power. The power comes from the application of reason. Uh, science comes from the application of reason and um you know so we live in uh, this culture that is still unfolding modernism i mean it's not like it's not like democracy is universal uh it's not of course um but at the same time because we have had um you know hundreds of years now of this manifestation uh modernism is also corrupted and we see that I mean, one, one way to think about this is that uh, one of the qualities of reason in, in modernism is linear causation. So you have a cause, you have an effect. You have a cause, you have an effect. Um, the reality of the biological world is that it's, it's ecological. It's systemic. So um, what happens if you dump um, oil wastes, you know, into the Cuyahoga River and set it on fire, it'll burn uh and you know i I mentioned that because i you know that's an example that came up you know and uh in some of the discourse recently about the clean water act in the united states and uh, but one of the ironies is that the fire in 1969 that got all the attention um i just learned this the other day was actually the 12th time that the Cuyahoga river had been on fire beginning in 1892 (laughs) so it's not you know it's it's about it's not only about the phenomenon, it's about where the consciousness is of the people in reaction to the... So what was different right. in 1892 was that the river burned, killed people, burned bridges, burned buildings, and then they just rebuilt them. They they kept dumping the stuff into the river. But by 1969, there was enough consciousness of the next level, postmodern consciousness or ecological consciousness, that people looked around and particularly young people and said this is insane to have a river burning we got to do something about this so that's the the postmodern consciousness has really just begin to evolve in large numbers of people in the last 60 years Although,
0: so it says that uh, what what postmodern consciousness says is that we have to be conscious and responsible to the whole Uh, all of the effects of our activity Mm -hmm. and to uh, where it's coming from in us, our motivations, Mm -hmm. that kind
1: of thing? Well, right, whatever system, so the biological system, the ecological system, the system of the person. um, You know, reason is not our only capacity as human beings. We have emotions. uh, We have intuition. We have bodies. Um, You know, uh, now we know, of course, uh, that we have, you know, brain cells, brain like cells in our hearts and in our guts. Well, geez, that's really interesting because pre modern cultures talked about the heart uh, and the center, the intelligence center in the belly for thousands of years. This is not new to human beings. It was only in the modern era that we ignored this stuff because we said, well, obviously, the, the center of, of intelligence is the brain.
0: So bring it back to education now mm-hmm. and, and help us out. And are all three, uh, um, all, all these three uh, uh, aspects of consciousness evident in education right now? As-
1: absolutely. The, you know, the simplest way to distinguish between uh, modernism, which is basically the way we run our public schools. You know, the Prussians invented modernism and in, in, uh, one of the things that we forget in, um, because of World War II in particular and because of the, you know, the insanity of the Hitler regime and um, the the dramatic fall of status in Germany and the world because of that. in Between 1750 and 1910, Germany was the leading scientific and technological nation on the planet, much more so even than England. The United States was a backwater, um, you know, And Germany led the way for 140 years. Germany, the Germans invented, the Prussians in particular, because Germany as a nation state didn't exist till 1870. The Prussians invented common public schooling. They invented most of the features. And of course, this is what drives me crazy if I get into this. Most of the features that we would see in your neighborhood elementary school, public elementary school in the United States, were invented in Prussia in 1810.
0: Oh. So, David, I want you to go more into the spiritual aspect of this. You okay. have a tremendous mm-hmm. background. Your bo- one of your books that's moved me tremendously, The Common Vision. Mm-hmm. And so I know you're talking about environment and I know we're talking about consciousness, but mm-hmm. now you've just referred back to the individual person mm-hmm. and you've indicated both in you know the brain cells in various parts and our three centers of intelligence and that sort of thing. But how does that play out in education and especially the spiritual aspects of it? Because I get emails all the time. What do you mean by a non-sectarian spirituality? Mm-hmm. And I try to ask each of us to answer that question.
1: Okay. Um, can I answer you? I want to answer your previous question first, and then I'll come to that. Rock and roll. One. Okay. So um, the, the real simple distinction between modernist and postmodern education is um, is that modernist education? It, it is, and everybody knows this. You know, is the banking model. You take the stuff outside the, the learner, outside the kid. You want to put it in their head, and then you want to test them make sure that's there. Um, postmodern education, everything starts from relationships. So that's the simplest distinction. If you're looking at a learning environment, and the relationships between the teacher the adults and the, and the children or teens and among the children and teens if those are not the starting place then it's not a postmodern learning environment
0: i've been so encouraged uh, this podcast has brought me in touch with so many different communities that i've been part of but hadn't been recently and the homeschooling community has really taken this and run with it mm-hmm. and It's just so exciting what what they, just Mm -hmm. the different people and opportunities that are coming out of it.
1: Well, I see that to some extent also. You probably know a lot more about that than I do. So, but it's really, I mean, that that's you know that's the simplest and some sense most profound distinction. And it doesn't. It's not to say that people that in public schools and particularly teachers in public schools don't care about kids. They do and don't want to do things for kids. They do for the most part, don't want to help kids. But the structure of of modernist schooling prevents the kind of deep and profound relationships that are at the heart of human growth, human unfoldment.
0: I've always, when I read about Buber and Gregory Bateson and the space between, and I talk about this all the time, and people will say to me, oh, I wish I said that, or why didn't I think of that? And I say to them, what happens in a relationship is in the relationship. Mm -hmm. You may have all these great things to say, but it's only what will the relationship allow to bring forward. We bring our best, we live in the space between that fundamental place of respect, that fundamental place of, I'm interested in you, I care, I'm really interested in you. And then it's emergent. And right. that's so exciting.
1: Right, exactly. And I mean, wh- wh- a book that I wrote and published uh, a couple of years ago, which um, <laughs> has not found an audience, <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. Um, I-, I wrote a book called Kids Need the Same Teacher for More Than One Year. And this was, uh, I was trying to address this to parents of public school children, and um, I had access to four uh, different public schools in the Seattle area, two elementary and two middle schools, where the teachers engaged with the same kids for at least three years, and in one case, five years. And even in the context of the public school. These are public schools in the Seattle area. One was actually in Seattle. The other three were in suburbs. Um, even with all the demands of the public school, you know, back in 2005, 2006, when I spent time in each of these schools and interviewed all these people, all these parents, um, and there was all this testing pressure and all this central curriculum pressure, these environments were profoundly distinct. Because in three years, you have a relationship. You have a whole different level of caring. You have a whole different level of responsibility. You have a whole different kind of relationship between the teacher and the parents. And and it's transformative. Um, you know, read the book, Kids Need the Teacher for More <laughs> Than One Year. And it, it just illustrates that even in the constraints of the modernist system, you know, you could actually transform what goes on in the interior now I, I would actually say that once if we actually got that going in a large way it would actually blow up the system because then people would get to a point where there'd be a critical mass and they would say to the exterior um you know power structure you know leave us alone so
0: thank you so let's go over to the spiritual aspect that mm-hmm. uh that i'm that i'm obviously so interested in and, and want to keep learning about
1: okay so that though the, the just to go back to the story, then um, I, you know, um, have my own, uh, you know, personal experience, uh, but, you know, back in the seventies as sort of a pretty lousy meditator and (laughs) a, uh, whatever that means. Well, Well, (laughs) I, I, I I ever have had a really, yeah, I lived in my head as a child. And so I had a very strong habitual norm of being in my head. So being in your head is not the place to be when you're trying to meditate.
0: My understanding of this, and I do want us to kick it around a little because I find it fun, is that as long as you're observing what's going on, it really doesn't matter what's going on. It's not the content, but the awareness of the content.
1: Well, that's absolutely true. But, um, when you're 25 and you can't get this shit out of your head, this stuff out of your head. <laughs> you
0: can say shit, it's fine. <laughs>
1: um, it doesn't feel that way, let me say that, so. And I also, um, you know, had, um, you know, different kinds of, um, you know, kind of dipping into different um, spiritual teachers work. And, and I always had, a, you know, each time I had a very strong negative relationship with kind of any kind of authoritarian, uh, stuff going on. And since that was sort of the norm for most of the, uh, spiritual teachers who came from India, who were around in the seventies, um, you know, my own experience was really pretty frustrating at the time. And, um, so the bottom line is I, uh, one evening, uh, had an intuition that came to me um, to study uh, Rudolf Steiner, and I knew a little bit about him. I mean, I didn't. I didn't know much, but I knew that there was something called the Waldorf School, and Sri Aurobindo, who I knew nothing about. Uh, I mean, I. I don't think I'd ever heard his name, and Hazrat Nai Khan, and I certainly had never heard his name. Uh, and you know, the nature of my relationship with my intuition in my life is that I pay attention to it. So I thought, you know, this was so clear. But
0: I thought you were only in your head.
1: Well, my intuition was in my head, right?
0: Oh, come on.
1: <laughs> so, you know, it was so clear to me um, that I spent, you know, the next five years, six years, um, studying the the three of them. And the irony of this is that... Um, because during that time I was, you know, a, a doctoral student at Harvard, I had access to the Harvard, you know, University Library, which uh, I don't know where it is now, but at that point claimed to be the most extensive university library collection on the planet.
0: More than the, what is it, the Bodolin in Oxford?
1: Uh, who knows what's true. Probably, yes. you know, who you know, it's Harvard. Harvard claims that they're the best everything, so. <laughs> uh, but it, it turned out that they did, in fact, have... Um, In the the Divinity Library, there's, I think, 12 or 13 volumes of uh, Hazrat Anayyad Khan's, I think he only wrote one book, but the rest is his talks. You know, he was a Sufi, so he talked and they would write it down. I'm
0: familiar with all these people from my own independent studies. Mm -hmm.
1: So they had uh, his collected works. Um, They had all kinds of stuff from Steiner. and then, uh, Aurobindo's thousand page books, they had I, a whole uh, shelf of publications from the Shurabindo yeah. Ashram, yeah, which, um, I later learned, um, were there because of Petrum Sorokin. Do you know Petrum? No, so Petrum Sorokin, um, was a Russian and, um, he was, he was, you know, from the upper, he was born into the upper class in Russia, and his initial claim to fame was that he was the chief aide to Alexander Kerensky, who was the, the, during the six months after the czar was killed, before Lenin took over, Kerensky was the prime minister. So Sorokin was a, was a young hotshot in his 20s, and, and then when Lenin took over, they all, you know, the Russian aristocracy all ran to London. Sorokin eventually uh, came to Harvard as a professor. And um, Sorokin was a very interesting sociologist, but he was a sociologist in the early part of the 20th century. when He was a social theorist. And he wrote a lot of... I mean, I read a lot of his stuff. He wrote a lot of really interesting material. But it turned out that he was actually a a devotee of Sri Aurobindo and the Mother, Mm. which, of course, he hid from the people at Harvard <laughs> uh, because it would have been completely unacceptable in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. But he collected this collection for me,
0: for me, wow, just for me. Was, that's great.
1: It was just for me because nobody, it would, it, you know, all this stuff was really filthy. And one of the things that I did was I cleaned it. Ah. And um, this was another part of the story where I, I had a um, – one of my colleagues uh, in my doctoral program worked in the library part time. And um, when I found this shelf, I mean, literally it was, it was a shelf. It was like three times the size of the shelf over there. So, you know, it was like six feet high by, by six feet wide, you know, five or six mm-hmm. shelves of pamphlets and books and pamphlets, you know, they published all kinds of stuff. Sure. And, um, and it was all covered with dust. And so I went to my my friend and I said, you know, can, can I get somebody to clean this before I, and she kind of looked at me like, are you crazy? We don't have time to. So I said, okay, well, can you show me how to clean it? And she said, well, we can't do that. You can't clean the books. And I said, well, yeah, I can. I'll just give me the cloth, I'll, you know. Mm-hmm. So I did it, you know. I mm-hmm. was in the bowels of the library, like the seventh level down. <laughs> And cleaning these, all these pamphlets, it was great. I mean, I had a great time. I mean, it was like an act of devotion.
0: So, but so, anyway, okay, good. That's so, where it
1: started. Well, that's interesting. And what and I, I, so. Okay, so what I discovered, you know, and this is, this is the core of my of my work, is that uh, around 1910, um, Steiner and Aurobindo and Anayat Khan each articulated a, a very detailed map of human unfoldment between birth and age 21. And it, it's, a, it's essentially, the, I believe, I, I would argue it's the same map. You know, they had different cultures. Um, with Steiner, I had to deal with the translators. With Anad Khan, I had to deal with the fact that he was a Sufi and he didn't necessarily talk directly. But about this, he talked pretty directly. And then Aurobindo was great because he wrote in English. You know, he was very clear. Once you understood his system, he's a very clear writer. Um, so the three of them, articulated this map of human unfoldment from birthdays 21 that describes the unfoldment potential of the physical body, uh, the emotional body, the the mental body, and the soul and spirit. Um, And that pretty much everything that's been discovered by developmental psychologists, beginning with Jean Piaget, and all of the people who have followed in his footsteps, who have looked at this, fits within this same map that these three men created and maria montessori had half of the map you know she had the body part and she had the mental part at the same time in in 1910.
0: Sounds wow that there was so much in those early 1900s wasn't there science and literature general semantics just this tremendous explosion
1: well we we haven't caught up to you know they've i mean my work has really been about um making taking that information you know out of the spiritual teacher category and making it available to wider audiences um you know in in the um in the english-speaking world
0: well, that's, that's really interesting because it leads to the question that I've been incubating as we speak, and that is you work with people in a master's program that you help create, self-design, graduate institute, by the way, and we always respect and honor SDGI at the end of every podcast. Well, thank you. <clears throat> and, well, thank you for making us part of the faculty.
1: Well, you're very welcome.
0: And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and... Um, one of the questions we have endlessly is how do we allow new educators to come forward um, with this deep understanding, um, in which, in to use the term postmodern, really extends back into self-reflection, so that they have it emb- they're at least embodying it or participating in it in a way that it's not some objectified series of information that's just going to be transmitted Mm -hmm. but is actually a living breathing uh, event and I know in the schools that I've run and you know about them it's been very hard to find really good teachers I know Paul up on Orcas Island also he always writes to me do you know anyone Deborah uh, Debbie Millen out at Wingra same thing so what do you see in that have you had success in that Um, and what would it look like, and what can we do here? Because uh, to me, that's a really—that's probably the most important social justice question I know right now.
1: Um, yeah, I, I mean, I certainly don't know the answer to that question. So I just, you know, will put forth some ideas.
0: Well, and your experiences to too. I mean, you've been um, working at this. Well,
1: the the, the difference with. Uh, with, uh, you know, with self-design, uh, graduate institute, um, is that we actually don't have a lot of learners who are focused on the education of children. And I think that's because, um, you know, people look at this whole school structure and the, you know, the apparent, um, you know, impermeability of its manifestation in our societies and, so I, I I don't know, um, you know I, I wonder about um, the path forward. You know I think I think um, I I had um, a learner uh, a couple of years ago um, who was really excited about reading what Buckminster Fuller had written about education, and I actually had never I mean I knew about Bucky Fuller of course. But I had never come across his writings about education. I, for some reason, I just never paid attention to it. And she was really interested in it because uh, Brent Cameron had really been influenced a lot. And Brent was the f- founder of self-design in Canada. And um, so uh, I, did, I did a directed study. And at Self-Design Graduate Institute, we have courses and we have directed studies. And the directed studies come from the learners. So this direct study came uh, from this learner, but it was really my directed study too. We did it together. It was great. And you know, it brought me back to what Bucky Fuller says about change, which is, you know, don't try to change the existing institution, create new ones. And yeah, you know, I think he given the fact that um, modernist schooling is the most reactionary manifestation in our culture. It's, 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 you know, the place to go is elsewhere. So, for example, um, you know, more and more in the last year, you know, I've been intrigued by the structure of the self-design learning community program in British Columbia. And this is a synthesis between public education, government-supported education, um, and family learning. And it does require, you know, it's not homeschooling because there's a relationship between what the family engages in, in learning for the child and the curriculum of the province. But the province also pays for it. So it's not dependent on the family being able to afford it. That's a big deal. and. Um, it's really the only large scale model that I'm aware of anywhere where there's a synthesis between schooling in some kind of conventional notion um, and home education, which is really, home education is the pre-modern form of learning. That everybody learned at home before school, but you know, before the industrial revolution, everybody learned at home except for a, a few boys in the upper class who went off to school. Um, and so, you know, we're coming to the end of, of modernism. I mean, the, you know, the modernist structures are breaking down. I mean, democracy is breaking down.
0: I, I'm working, as you know, you've put me in touch. I have 20 or so British Col- learners in the British Columbia
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, self-design system that I've just started working with. And they are among the most enthusiastic mm-hmm. and quick learning uh, support people I've ever seen. And, mm-hmm. of course, I've done so much work in my life around family with Josette, with myself, all those family programs mm-hmm. I ran and so on. So they are just excited and into it. And it's really enlivening for me to be part of it.
1: Well, I mean, one of Brent's, uh, Brent Cameron's, you know, elements of genius in creating this program and I want to acknowledge he didn't do it alone. There were other folks helping him with it. Um, is this notion of the learning consultant. And so this is a whole new you know, vision. So the learning consultant. Uh, new or
0: wasn't, isn't that pretty much what Carl Rogers was saying in the 80s and late
1: 70s? Well, yeah, but to manifest it on the scale yes. where you have 2,500 families.
0: Twenty five hundred. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You know
1: this. This is a um, this is a large scale social manifestation, and the learning consultant. And just you know, for listeners who are not aware of the program, although you can go to selfdesign. and learn about it, the learning consultant works with the family and with young children, primarily with the parents, and then as children get older, they work more and more with the with the child or with it with the teenager. Um, they support the parents. Yes, they
0: are looking for, the people I'm working with are looking for a lot of conversation. How can we bring natural learning relationships to the parents? Mm-hmm. Do you have something simple? So I'm sending them docs mm-hmm. so that they can begin to talk about supporting the whole child.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one of, and so this, just to finish this thought, and then you just, I just had a, a brainstorm <laughs> here that I want to get to. Um, excuse me. Um So this notion is that the the parents are not alone in homeschooling. The parents are alone.
0: Well, they make collectives. I mean, I formed one in 1985. Right.
1: But they're primarily alone in in the responsibility. Um, In the self-designed program, they're engaged with the learning consultant. And, of course, this could only exist because, um, you know, now we have broadband Internet. So there's a quality of relationship you know, some of them do use the telephone, but they really do use video chatting. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a quality of relationship that comes because of the video chatting, because people can see each other's faces.
0: I, I'm surprised at how uh, how much relationship is possible there. I was mm-hmm. skeptical,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but every time I've done it, it has been successful.
1: So, so this brings um, this technological innovation and... You know, into play and makes possible what's really a new form. This, you know, this has become clear and clear to me in the last couple of years, actually the last year, that that self-designed program in British Columbia is really a new form. And uh, what's exciting about it is that you know one of the larger societal trends um, is that more and more people are we're going to be working at home, and this is already happening, and it's going to intensify. And um, so it makes possible, um, it's not a return to pre-modern education, but it's an innovation that, that takes some pre-modern elements and integrates them with the modern, with the post-modern, and then begins to have integral qualities because the, the nature of integral consciousness um, is the capacity to, uh, as, as Ken Wilber says, transcend and include. So you're, you've evolved to a higher level of consciousness, but you can include positive elements from previous stages.
0: Great. Well, we have about five or ten more minutes. So you said, did we cover the brainstorm? No. <laughs> What's the brainstorm? Okay. So, and then um, I'm, I'm going to have one more question after that that's important to me, which is asking you to give advice there's a lot of people now who are listening to this podcast. There's a lot of people who are starting to ask, is there a different way in education? There's a lot of borderline people, people on the people on the border mm-hmm. looking to move over. As you say, there's a lot of people who work at home now who have a who really want, and we see this really in dads a lot. I mean, really want that relationship with their children and so on. So we want to give them some support to allow them to step into the deeper aspects of education. Okay.
1: But first, your brainstorm. Well, um, it just struck me uh, as you shared the eagerness of the learning consultants that you, you're you now engaged with to learn about your work, your work and Josette's work, um, of what a beautiful match that is for them, for the self-design folks. And um, it's a whole other tool, set of tools for them in working with families. And what, what could evolve, and this is something um, let, I, I, you know, probably will get to a point where I want to work on this, you know, in a more programmatic way, is if these, uh, when these 20 people or so begin to talk with other learning consultants about what they're learning from you there will be interest among the other learning consultants and so we may want to create something more explicit that becomes of so that natural learning relationships becomes a more integral part of self design
0: i i would love it and of course you've been just incredible in bringing all these kinds of things actually to fruition it's just it's always been, Josette and I talk about it as inspiring all the time, but I, just to follow through on that, it is the community that I feel we we are most mm-hmm. um, connected to. I love that, that who they are, what they've mm-hmm. chosen, the mm-hmm. opportunities they have, and that they have a financial support because so many holistic uh, enterprises suffer from lack of financial support so that the Uh, District is paying them to hang in boy it's fantastic and just just fantastic I'm just thrilled by the whole thing
1: well it's an interesting I mean the political climate in British Columbia is interesting because um, the, the previous government which was a conservative government articulated this agenda that they wanted to provide a personalized education to every child in the province so once they articulated that we began to hang our program on that Um, of course they don't have a clue about how to do that (laughs) and they also didn't fund their initiative so now the other party which is a center-left party is in power Um, and so far they haven't really done anything about education you know they have many other uh, fish to fry and but it's not clear that they support this agenda either But it's also not clear that they're hostile to it so so one of our um you know efforts i mean one one of the values of of getting big uh as aside from being able to serve more families is to really have you know some more clout in the political domain and we've been working on that as well
0: which i admire tremendously i do so give your advice if you will what would you say i'm a parent I'm coming to you. I'm saying, you know, I notice my child's not happy in the public school. I'm concerned about them having success in this society, about learning the tools that they need to go ahead and be successful in this society. I want more relationship. I, I have some time uh, to be with them. I I just don't know really what to do. What are my steps? Start from where I am and step me through how I move.
1: Um, Well, that's a great question. Um, I think the first thing that I would say about that (laughs) is um, be in the present. So I I have a, a profound faith in the capacities of the human organism to unfold into its potentials if it's nurtured in the present, in each present along the way. And um, so I think this notion of worrying about, you know, what kind of worker my child have or will they be financially successful or will they be able to compete um, misses the point because there's really no way to know what the society will be like in 10, 15, 20, 25 years that your child is going to grow up into. Um, you know, we don't know. I mean, again, if you think about the the differences between uh, even 2000, so 18 years ago and now, you know, there's no way we could have predicted the way this has unfolded. Um, so, but you do know your child in the present. And the quality of attention that you can bring to your child is really by paying attention to who is your child as a human being and what is it that serves your child's unfoldment as a unique human being. And even that quality of attention, I think, begins to change the whole challenge of parenting. Um, Because then, as you get to know your child in the present, um, it, it often becomes, or usually becomes clear to you, what, what is it that your child thrives on? And again, that's what I would say to you, what is it that your child thrives on? Um, you know, you don't need to worry, I would argue about, I mean, I'm not saying that you want to give your child complete control of their lives because that's not you know realistic either. Um, but this notion that I, I mean, I absolutely believe, and this comes from my, my reading of Steiner and Aurobindo and Anad Khan, is that uh, the soul knows what it needs at every age. So the question is how does the soul manifest itself? And the way that they describe this is that the soul manifests itself through the child's interest, through the child's curiosity, through the child's expression of will and and will is really different than desire and that's a critical distinction because you know we all have a desire nature and our desire nature is not necessarily good for us you know like we'd like to have we'd like to have sometimes you know a fourth cupcake or a fifth cupcake (laughs) you know or a second that's the desire nature (laughs) but but the will is a really different quality and and again parents can really get clear about that distinction just by looking at yourself, feeling into yourself, what's that distinction between the desire nature and the will? Um, you know, one of the things, if, if you go and look at the lives, um, you know, of, of a number of, you know, quote-unquote famous people who have been unschooled, um, one of the common patterns is that their parents Recognized their genius, and and I use that word. Michael Mead talks about genius a lot, and he's really talking about the expression of the soul, um, and he's using genius in the way that the Greeks did, you know. And but the that the unique capacity and qualities of each individual, um, and, and I say that literally. I'm not speaking figuratively. I'm speaking very much literally. Um, so to really attend to that and support it recognizing that things also will change you know that that what is the most profound interest of the seven-year-old might become really different when they're 11 or 12 or 13 it
0: will become very different but that's really okay Mm -hmm. that's fine because Or
1: sometimes it won't sometimes there's a clarity i know that expresses itself you know at 3 i mean mozart i mean it's you know
0: well that's you know, yeah i know what you're saying but no.
1: but again he's not that unique you know that's the piece that i want to get at then i mean another part of this is you know we one of the things we do in the society um you know we pick out these 15 16 17 year olds who are changing the world and we say wow isn't that really exciting um aren't they unique well they are unique but that capacity exists in in every adolescent.
0: It's it's the subs, It's the absolute. The, you know, I was walking with my son Alby the other day, and he said, "You know, I've been thinking about faith." He, he said, and I've come up with this idea. He said, "To me, faith is just the sure and certain knowledge." that everyone has greatness and wholeness in them, just Mm -hmm. ready to come forward. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a great definition? Mm -hmm. I thought, yeah, I'll be Thank you. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. Thank
0: thank you. Okay. Well, thank you, David. I think Josette wants to come in and snap our picture. (laughs) So that's where we'll go now. Thank you. Thank
1: you. you. This has been fun. I've enjoyed the the opportunity uh, to have this conversation.
0: Meetings with Remarkable Educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators, please visit patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young, Our webmaster is Nathan Young, and our all-important social media maven is Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Bob Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.